Britain has dealt the Italian fleet a blow which its remains will remember for a long, long time. At one fell swoop, three battleships, two cruisers and auxiliaries were put out of action. Thus, Mussolini is forced to realize that his much vaunted navy isn't safe even in port. The old pilots' plain tales, the string bags. In February 1942, British forces engaged with Nazi Germany, attempting to prevent a dash down the English Channel by two Scharnhorst-class battleships and the heavy cruiser Prinz Eugen, along with escorts. Of one attack, the German officer commanding the Kriegsmarine squadron, Vice Admiral Otto Siliax, remarked that the mothball attack of a handful of ancient planes piloted by men whose bravery surpasses any other action by either side that day. The attack he spoke of had been hastily organised, a sortie of six aircraft led by Lieutenant Commander Eugene Esmond, that, without fighter cover, was struck by 15 ME-109s as they doggedly pressed on, lining up their torpedoes until every aircraft was shot down. Esmond was posthumously awarded the Victoria Cross. The ancient planes that the Vice-Admiral spoke of were fairy swordfish, a biplane torpedo bomber that were better known as string bags, and the Germans weren't the only ones to comment on the bravery of those pilots. British Vice-Admiral Bertram Ramsey wrote later, In my opinion, the gallant sortie of these six swordfish aircraft constitutes one of the finest exhibitions of self-sacrifice and devotion to duty the war has ever witnessed. This was to be one of the final times that the string bag was to be thrown into such a battle. The Ferry Aviation Company produced Swordfish in 1930, and it was to be one of the last British military biplane generation of aircraft. Designed as a torpedo bomber and reconnaissance aircraft, it had a metal framework covered in fabric. The string bag nickname came more from its ability to carry a seemingly endless variety of stores and equipment, rather than its struts, spars, braces and fabric construction that made it resemble a string shopping bag. Powered by a Bristol Pegasus air-cooled radial engine, it could manage an unremarkable maximum speed of 124 knots. It carried a crew of three, the pilot, an observer and radio operator who doubled up as a rear gunner, controlling a single .303 Vickers machine gun. The pilot could fire a second Vickers mounted over the engine cowling. Despite its relatively poor performance, nearly 2,400 aircraft were built and they remained in service, mainly with the Royal Navy, throughout the Second World War. The first operational use of the swordfish was during the Norwegian campaign, although despite the bravery of the crews, they failed to make a serious impact. Operation DT involved the aircraft carrier Furious, a converted battlecruiser, which had embarked nine skewers and nine swordfish. Furious had orders to strike shipping in Norwegian waters and the seaplane base at Tromsø, 
but it had little success and lost several aircraft. On the 22nd of September, missions were flown against both Tromsø and Trondheim. Several were shot down, but in addition, in bad weather, the aircraft failed to find their targets, and on their return, several couldn't find the carrier either. Two landed in a cornfield on the island of Lekka, near the Norwegian coast. There were no Germans there, so after burning their aircraft, the locals took them in a fishing boat towards the Shetland Isles of Scotland. Unfortunately, their engine failed and the boat drifted back to Norway, where they were captured near Hulton Lighthouse and spent the rest of the war in POW camps. Other aircraft made forced landings in heavy fog near Trondheim's Fjorden, where they were captured. A fourth aircraft ditched at sea after failing to find their carrier, the crew drowned, and a fifth overturned in a Swedish lake, but they were lucky enough to be interned in Sweden, a neutral country. After this rather ignominious start, doubts were raised about the effectiveness of the string bag, as if it wasn't already obvious, but that was before the Battle of Taranto. It was only a couple of months after Operation DT that the Royal Navy made history by making the first ever all-aircraft ship-to-ship naval attack. The Regia Marina had been the Navy of the Kingdom of Italy since 1861. It had fought with distinction in many wars, and as the Second World War loomed, the Italian government had set about modernising it, so that it could dominate the Mediterranean Sea. They built a class of light cruiser with main weapons that could outgun the Royal Navy. Their first World War battleships were significantly upgraded, and they built a fleet of destroyers and submarines. One area that they ignored, however, was the development of radar, rangefinders and sonar, which basically limited them into a good-weather daytime force. The Italian fleet was harboured at Taranto. It consisted of six battleships, nine heavy cruisers, seven light cruisers and thirteen destroyers. In addition, the harbour was protected by 101 anti-aircraft guns, 193 machine guns and 27 barrage balloons and anti-torpedo nets. It was the 11th of November 1940, and the Royal Navy was sailing to attack. At the head of Admiral Cunningham's small force was a single aircraft carrier, HMS Illustrious, and escorting it were two heavy cruisers, two light cruisers and five destroyers. On board Illustrious were 21 string bags. As the sun set and the time to launch came round, the pilots would have been understandably nervous. The attack had originally been planned with two carriers, but HMS Eagle had fallen by the wayside with a breakdown in her fuel system. In addition, they would be flying without fighter cover, and a significant proportion of the attack force was tasked with dropping flares and bombs from above to illuminate the area and distract the anti-aircraft gunners. The aircraft had all been fitted with auxiliary fuel tanks, which meant reducing the crew to only two. Finally, they got airborne. The bomber and flare aircraft first, followed a while later by the torpedo carriers. One of the pilots described the attack. 
6,000 feet. God, how it's cold here. The sort of cold that fills you until everything else is drowned. Is it surprising my knees are knocking together? Turning, I see the formation lights and climb up after them. Opening up the throttle, we lumber away. Poor engine will get a tanning this trip. A little later, he continued. This is the beginning. A breeder, anti-aircraft gun, swings around, turning its stream of red balls in our direction. Then another two guns, further north, get our scent. White balls this time. We throttle back and make for a factory where no balloons are likely to grow. We must be at a hundred feet now and must soon make our dash across the bloody water. I open the throttle wide and head for the mouth of the Mar Piccolo. Then it is as if all hell comes tumbling in on top of us. The fire from one of the cruisers and the Mar Piccolo canal batteries. We turn until the battleship is between the bars of the torpedo site. The water is so close beneath our wheels. Then we level out, and almost without a thought, the button is pressed, and a jerk tells me the fish is gone. The night attack was made from only a few feet above the water, a mere thousand yards from the target, and at only 90 knots to stop the torpedo from diving into the bottom of the harbour. Two waves of aircraft, six and then five, attacked with torpedoes, and six of their weapons struck. Within minutes, the Italian fleet lost half of its capital ships. Other damage was done by the bombers, cruisers were damaged, aircraft destroyed, and oil tanks set ablaze. The Italian defences fired 13,489 shells from their land batteries alone, but only two swordfish were downed. The Regia Marina, however, was severely shaken by their vulnerability to attack, and the balance of power had swung to the British Mediterranean fleet. It is remarkable that a score of swordfish inflicted more damage on the Italian fleet than the entire British Grand Fleet had achieved against the German High Seas Fleet at Jutland in 1916. Admiral Cunningham wanted to repeat the attack the next night, but was prevented by bad weather. As one joker in the pilot's briefing room remarked, they only asked the Light Brigade to do it once. The string bag continued to amaze, and in May 1941, attacks helped to bring about the demise of the Bismarck. The mighty battleship was Germany's largest warship, and the largest of any European nation. Its biggest guns fired 15-inch shells, and the vessel could cruise over 8,000 nautical miles at 19 knots. It met the Royal Navy at the Battle of Denmark Straits, and within minutes a broadside from the Bismarck's armour-piercing shells penetrated the battle cruiser HMS Hood, igniting the rear ammunition magazine. The warship was ripped apart by the explosion, and after only eight minutes of firing, the Hood had disappeared, taking all but three of her complement of 1,419 men to the bottom. It was perhaps only fitting then 
that the obsolete string bag should be the architect of Bismarck's demise. The chase was on, and although damaged in the Denmark Straits, the Bismarck had still managed 27 knots. The Royal Navy had ordered all available warships to join in the pursuit of the German battleship, and eventually it was spotted, but unless it could be slowed, it would safely make port in Saint-Nazaire. HMS Victorious was the first to launch its aircraft, and a flight of nine string bags attacked. With violent manoeuvring, the Bismarck evaded eight of nine torpedoes, and the ninth only caused minor damage. But the turns and rapid shifts of speed had loosened some of the temporary repairs and water was being taken on. This forced a slowing to 20 knots, but safety for the battleship was still assured. A second attack of 15 swordfish from the Ark Royal proved a disaster for the Bismarck. Nobody is certain how the attacking aircraft survived their long, slow approach to the mighty battleship, but it is thought the planes were just too slow for the fire control predicting system that the German gunners use, and the shells were exploding too far in front to inflict much damage. Some attacks were so low that they were unable to depress their flak weapons far enough. However, through a hail of anti-aircraft fire, survive they did. The huge ship was struck once more, again causing only minor damage, but a final torpedo hit and badly damaged the port rudder shaft, jamming the rudder in a 15-degree port turn. Sensing victory, the battleships of the Royal Navy circled the crippled monster, and Lucians, the captain, sent a signal to the German high command. Ship unmanoeuvrable. We will fight to the last shell. Long live the Führer. Four capital ships of the Royal Navy fired more than 2,800 shells and hit the Bismarck 400 times but it still remained afloat. Eventually, realising the end had come, the chief engineering officer set demolition charges, and finally the Bismarck was sunk by the stern. Despite these amazing successes, the much-loved string bag was not truly suited to the dangers of a war that was entering a new era of technology, where aircraft could commonly fly twice its speed. Hesmond's attack on the Scharnhorst battleships against hopeless odds that opened this tale of bravery was one of the last times the aircraft was used in that manner. It continued to contribute in many less dangerous tasks, such as anti-submarine patrols. Indeed, it accounted for 14 U-boats destroyed, and bombing missions in areas where it wouldn't be so vulnerable to the more modern high-performance fighters of the day. However... For an aircraft that was designed for a different era, it did a remarkably good job. More, however, because of the bravery and determination of its crews than anything else. And we should rightly salute them and their achievements.